Welcome to Portraits of Honor. We stand in the swiftly fading shadow of our World War II veterans and heroes who united for a single purpose, to honor life, liberty, and justice for all. They were soldiers and sailors, airmen and mechanics, nurses and pilots, radio operators, ordinary people who did extraordinary things. Our mission is to preserve their stories, to bring their experiences to life for a new generation. This is our tribute, our act of honor. Through their words, we explore the essence of honor and remember the sacrifices that were made. For just the cost of a cup of coffee each month, you can help us preserve their stories. Visit portraitsofhonor.com to learn more. Join us as we journey back in time, as we listen, learn, and remember. This is Portraits of Honor. Let the stories of these heroes begin. This interview is presented in two parts. This is part one. In this episode, we honor the extraordinary life and service of Sergeant Ray Lambert, an army medic who showed bravery in the face of danger during the invasions of North Africa, Sicily, and D-Day. Despite his injuries, Lambert's heroic actions saved numerous lives. His story of valor, for which he received three Purple Hearts and two Silver Stars, offers a profound insight into the resilience and selflessness of a true war hero. This interview was recorded on August 20, 2019, in Seven Lakes, North Carolina. Yes, I'm from Alabama. Uh, I was born near Clanton, Alabama, which is the county seat of Chilton County. I was about 12 miles in a little place called Cane Creek. It was so small that you walked through it before you realized you were there. <laughs> good peaches down there too. Oh yes, yes, <laughs> yes, very good. I just had some recently. Yeah, Chilton County peaches. Alabama was mostly, uh, before World War II, was mostly cotton uh, and those crops. During World War II is when Alabama started uh, putting in peaches. North Carolina was the state that was known for peaches uh, before Alabama started putting in peaches. But uh, during the uh, World War II is when they started uh, growing peaches. And now they are quite a, a peach grower. But you can just look at me. Don't look at the camera. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's still rolling. So, um, so I read your book, which was fantastic and a good read. Just finished it last week. And, um, but thank you for writing it. Um, you, um, so I, I know the answer to a lot of these questions probably from the book, but yes. um, when did you enter the service? 1940. I think it was January 1940. And um, sometimes these things uh, escape my memory. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. But you you were a medic. How did that how did that story out or happen? I worked for a, a veterinarian 
Dr. Parrish in Clinton, Alabama during the summer. And my job was to inoculate dogs for rabies. And I would put up signs uh, that I would be doing that job on Saturdays so the uh, farmers and people that had dogs could bring them in without interrupting their work schedule. And they would have to bring them there and pay 50 cents to get the, uh, the vaccination for rabies. If they didn't do that, we'd have to take the dog and they'd build a fence around the jail in Clannan, we call that the compound. And we would put the dogs in there until they paid the 50 cents to get them inoculated. And of course, while they were there, they had to be fed and uh, watered uh, all the time. So they had to pay uh, uh, extra 50 cents. So that time it would cost them a dollar. I was uh, licensed to carry a pistol, which I carried in a shoulder holster, and also a badge, because going out into the country, some of the farmers didn't look very light on the fact that you either going to take their dog or they had to pay if you get their dog done. So when I was ready to go and enlist in the service, uh, the recruiting sergeant asked me what I'd been doing. I told him I'd been working with Dr. Parrish, a veterinarian, and he said, we'll put you in a medic. So that's how I went from a vaccinating dog to vaccinating dog faces. <laughs> Soldiers were called dog faces. <laughs> so that's how I got in, went into medic. Well, that's really interesting. Um, so you went to basic training where? I went to basic training in Fort Benning, Georgia. And uh, after that, we did a lot of moving around with the First Division and 60, I was in the 16th Infantry, 2nd Battalion, and we uh, traveled by convoy uh, from down to Texas and Louisiana on maneuvers. And from there, we went to Maine, uh, up on the St. Lawrence River, and did maneuvers up there. After that, we went to Fort Devon, Massachusetts, and while I was there, uh, I was picked to go to medical school in Colorado to Fitzsimmons General Hospital. And I went there and I took a, a course, extended course there in surgery, and uh, which meant uh, I had to learn how to reset bones knowing the different layers of skin, how to suture and all that sort of thing. And after I came back from there, uh, I went, came back to my unit. Yeah. Did you feel pretty confident after that course to, to, to do that in battle? Yes, I did. Uh, one of the things in, in battle, of course, is strictly first aid. Uh, it's very important to keep the patient, or casualty as we call them, uh, from going into shock. 
Uh, once a patient goes into shock, you can lose them. So we were doing uh, patch-up work. I, uh, unfortunately, uh, some of the guys would have their arm or legs just hanging by a little skin in order to transport them. We had to take that leg off. So we'd have to uh, tie it off, tie off the vein, arteries and so forth. And then uh, put a bandage on them that hopefully would work, get them in an ambulance or a Jeep and get them back as quick as possible to hospitals. They would go from us to collecting stations and then go back to hospital. So we saved many, many guys like that. Other uh, wounds could be uh, machine gun bullets, wounds that would go, uh, sometimes go right through the body. And you'd have to penetrate around that sometime with a scaffold to try to tie off there. Uh, bayonet wounds were, uh, uh, stomach wounds are difficult very difficult to handle, but you had to, if a guy was cut across his stomach, you had to repack that. You had to put in packing to hold his stomach in and bandage that, and it gives them some uh, morphine or something, give them a shot, get them back. Other wounds on the front line were of uh, course, bayonet cuts, uh, fragmentation wounds, which are uh, more difficult than bullets. They get teared more. And so we were doing strictly first aid, and my job was uh, trying to... Uh, I had to do... Where we did have to do surgery and patch up something, uh, we'd do that, but very little stitching. Uh, on the front line because you would want to, some wounds, you would want to stitch while they were fresh, if you want to call it fresh, while they were fresh because once they start uh, healing together, it's too late sometimes to stitch properly. But we were strictly first aid, we were in, uh, machine gun distance of the front line and had the uh, uh, aid station hit by uh, 80 millimeters or artillery a number of times. Some of our guys, the uh, aid station guys, were, got, were killed from that. How many uh, medics did you, were assigned to you or with you? We had uh, Depended a lot on the uh, the battle, uh, the type of uh, battle. Uh, we had I had 27, uh, that, and I had two doctors. The uh, doctors were doctors at that time. Brought in some were not military, and so it was up to each battalion. Sergeant, we had the first, second, third battalions in the regiment, and each uh, battalion, uh, the men were headed up by a staff sergeant. 
and uh, that was my job. Uh, and we were to take care of the men and sign them into different jobs and make sure supplies were there, just overseeing all that, that sort of thing. Because the doctors were busy with their jobs too, doing their jobs in the end stage. So we had, um, I had to assign men uh, to each company as company aid men. Those men lived with the company, the infantry company, and uh, uh, so that they'd get to know the, the members of that company. And uh, then we had the litter bearers, the guys assigned as litter bearer, and then also, we rotated the men in uh, the aid station. Uh, they would be working day and night. We had a, an, oil, an oil lamp that we used in, and we had a, two medical chests set up with a stretcher across those. That was our operating table. Mm -hmm. And we had uh, our uh, sterilization, we sterilized with alcohol. We have an alcohol tray, and once you use the instrument, hand those to a guy, and he'd clean them up because he couldn't put them in the alcohol tray. And we used them over and over again. Had a guy that sharpened the needles that we used, and we used syringes over and over again at that time. And so it was uh, really, when I think back to how we, able to do that. And sometime we didn't have as many as uh, 80 uh, guys that were wounded in one hour. And trying to take care of those guys and get them sent back was, uh, was quite a job. Yeah, thinking back, uh, you wonder how you did it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You did what you were trained to do. That's what we were trained to do and we were good at it. You saved many, many lives. So, you started, well, you, you first went to uh, North Africa? Our first invasion was North Africa at Oran. Actually, our zoo was right up, very near Oran. We made the landing at our zoo in North Africa. And um, how, how long were you? Did you, was the fighting going on there before you went elsewhere? Probably uh, the better part of a year, as I remember. It's funny because uh, sometimes my mind is clicks on everything on a day. But lately, I've been uh, uh, involved in so many things that are going on about D-Day that it just uh, Kind of runs together. Yeah, but I I was probably about a year in Africa. And then you went to Sicily? Sicily, yeah. We invaded Sicily at Gila, and uh, that was uh, much, uh, much harder, I guess the word to use, than, than, than Africa. Uh, we were faced by 28 German Panzer tanks, shaped like a horseshoe, 
around the beach and we were coming in the beach and they were sitting about uh, half a mile in front of us and we could see them and we could, uh, of course, hear the firing coming in at us. And we had not at that time had any uh, anti-tank uh, guns off, uh, unloaded. And the uh, soldiers, the infantry, were fighting the tanks with their uh, rifles and sticky, what we call sticky bow. Mm -hmm. They had dynamite attaches, they could stick it on the side of a tank and blow it. They were even uh, crawling up on the tank who was firing machine guns at them. Get up there and trying to pry open the hatch and drop hand grenades in there. And uh, I never saw guys uh, fight so hard and so just brave stuff that they were doing fighting those tanks. The battleships knocked out several of the tanks and the tanks uh, uh, turned and moved back. And the only thing that saved us from being pushed back in the ocean at that time was they didn't have uh, foot soldiers supporting the tanks. And so I'm wondering, how did, like, how did you guys get close enough to the tanks to just keep moving forward. So moving they didn't have money. They are, we are, as the medics were, we were evacuating wounded as fast as we could. And uh, you just uh, run, the guys would run, zagging runs, and there was nothing too much to get behind there. So they just uh, went at them, you know, and that's, that's the way you have to do it with this machine gun, uh, whatever it was, you just had to go into it. But if they had more foot soldiers? If they had, there. right after they pulled back, after the battleship was fighting the tanks and they pulled back, they brought 50 loads of foot soldiers in there. Had they had the 50 loads of foot soldiers uh, while the tanks were there, the foot soldiers would have been moving forward against us too. And I don't know what the results have been, but uh, the 16th Infantry and the, the whole infantry regiment was really a tough bunch of guys. And we've, we fought some terrible battles and won. And the guys were not afraid to tackle anything. It's amazing. Where do you think was the toughest? There in Sicily? Troina. Troina, oh. the city of Troina was the toughest one. It was built on ledges, uh, big boulders and rocks. And the Germans, uh, we fought day and night there. We took Sicily in 31 days. Uh, we'd go uh, a week. Uh, without pulling our shoes off or clothes, just keep moving forward all the time, sleeping when we could, and no meal times. You just eat when you get a chance. Troina was the last big stand of the Germans. They uh, pulled most of their high-ranking officers uh, 
all of Sicily at that time got to cross over into Italy and turned that battle over to the non-commissioned officers. And they were good. They, they put up a battle there. They used their mind, their men well. And we lost a lot of, a lot of men there. There was hand-to-hand -hand fighting. It was, uh, that was the uh, fierce battle, I guess, one of the worst. So that was throwing it, yeah. So it was about 31 days on Sicily, plus any extra time there, or did you go back to England? We spent uh, just a few, uh, we spent about two weeks there. Uh, kind of reorganizing and we had a uh, we had guys that had a trench foot that had to be uh, taken care of because when they made the invasion everyone got wet it was five days before they could pull off their shoes or change their sock and that continued on through because they didn't have we couldn't uh, uh, Call them in, they were fighting, so we get, couldn't get them in. So many of them had sore feet and athlete's foot. So we had, we had, uh, we didn't have really anything that, like they have today to treat athlete's foot. So Dr. Morshan and I were trying to figure some way that we could cure their feet. We knew we needed a drying agent. We knew something that we needed something to kind of help the pain. So all we had that we could come up with was us. We had plenty of aspirin, so we crushed up aspirin in alcohol, and we made a liquid for them to wash their feet in. Uh, and they do that every day for about a week, and then cured their feet, dried it, dried it up, and cured gave a little relief. So that was our Dr. Morshan. I came up with that idea. Then after that, we had some uh, uh, guys that were just completely exhausted and need some rest. And we went to, after that, we went to Harbor Savannah, uh, not Georgia, but Savannah in Sicily. And we went back, shipped back to Algiers, and it was sailed out of Algiers. That's exhausting just to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. And the, the, the food on the, it was a British ship, and the food on that ship uh, was uh, not very good, but uh, we'd been used to eating out of cans, and we had one ration. It was a D-ration, it was chocolate, very rich chocolate. It was about that square. They had four, scored four different places. And you could break off a piece for breakfast and a piece for lunch or any other time. That was your daily ration. So you drink some water with that. Very, very rich, rich chocolate. So on the ship, they were going from Savannah back to Algiers. It was an awful smell on it. Yeah. We couldn't find what that smell was for a while. 
Then every time we'd go on a ship, the medics have to set up a sick bay for our men, take care of our own men. So dear, where we set up the sick bay, was this awful, awful smell. So the, uh, our regimental surgeon said to me and one of the other sergeants, medics, they were on all battalions from, to find out what that was. So we kept looking around. We went down with, right outside the boiler of the engine room on there. There was a space probably about a little larger than this room. And that smell was off there. We looked in and what they'd been feeding me, the troops on there was rabbit. And they had brought live rabbits on that ship in, in crates. And when they killed them, they would skin them and hang the skins up in that area. And they, and once they dry, then when they get back to England, they'd take the skins out and I guess sell them out of what they did. But that's what this smell was. And then it almost turned everyone again. They healed from there after that. But of course, in World War II, rabbit was about the only thing you could get in England other than fish. Rations were uh, so strict there going to the military. Children got about an ounce of meat a week. And, and they had these little ferrets, they called little animals. And they, the farmers would take those, they'd run their rabbits out of the holes and tunnels where they were. And they would kill the rabbits and they had little carts uh, two-wheel carts, some four, and they'd hang up, hang the rabbits up after they had uh, gutted them and everything, but not skin them. They'd hang them up on those carts and push them up the street to sell them. Mm. Restaurants would buy them and families would buy them. That's most that mostly meat they had. Like rabbit stew. Yeah. Yeah. This podcast is a charitable supported public service. To learn more about the veteran featured on this podcast, please go to portraitsofhonor.com. There you'll find more stories, portraits, and ways to be part of this act of honor. Every day, a few hundred World War II veterans pass away, and soon they'll all be gone. For the cost of a few cups of coffee each month, you can help us support the mission to give all these deserving veterans their portrait of honor and record and memorialize their stories forever. Please go to portraitsofhonor.com today to make your donation and show your support. Leave us a review and share this episode. By remembering the past, we can inspire a better future. Join us next time on Portraits of Honor. <laughs>